Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Bookmarked and Dog-Eared, a podcast about writing and creativity. I'm Elise Mullen, host of this week's episode. Today, I'm sitting down with Hallie Hill, a writer who was recently published in Oxford American, Hobart, and Joyland. Her story from Oxford American was nominated for the Penn Robert J. Dow Short Story Prize for Emerging Writers. She graduated from SCAD in 2020 with an MFA in writing. We'll be talking about her creative process and what motivates her to write. I hope you enjoy. So I'm reading from my short story that was published in the Oxford American for the um, summer fall 2020 issue. And the story is called Bitch Baby. So I'm going to read a portion of that. Reggie and the doctor were going places. The doctor pumped his head full of European dreams. He told Reggie about France and how people like them could live freely. Reggie swore one day they'd move. The doctor would leave his wife and baby and Reggie would leave me and they would start over together. That night, when Reggie came to get me, he was feeling bold. Under his jacket, he was already wearing that dress. It glittered all over him. His hair was fresh with a perm and slipped over to the side and he was grinning, the tips of his baby teeth showing. Reggie put the windows down and I hopped in and started rolling. I lit the papers and made the car glow red. I passed him the blunt. It was going fine until we swerved a little. The cop had started following us some time back and it made Reggie nervous. He drove slowly, deliberately. Fucking pigs, he sighed. Reggie chewed on his knuckle and tapped his foot. He reached to turn the dial on the radio and the car dipped to the the left. Then the lights came on. It happened so quickly. The stop, the pull, the baton, the crack, the blood, the gurgle. My brother's body laid on the road, gashes all over, and I watched the cop stomp the crown of his scalp, then the back of his head. Reggie screamed and screamed and stopped altogether. I ran to Reggie. I howled, holding him and rocking him. The officer spit in front of me. Leave it and drive on, he said, unless you want to turn to. I tried to pat Reggie's face to get him to wake up, but I couldn't make him stay conscious. The blood was running all down his face and in his mouth. He started throwing up blood and bile and teeth. He muttered over and over again, I can't see, Seely. Why can't I see? When the cop car was far enough away, I pulled him into the passenger side of our sedan and wiped the blood from around his mouth and eyes. I screamed. His eyes were going in every direction. I drove to the hospital with blood on my good clothes. When they got him on the gurney and he passed out, I found a nurse and asked her for a phone to call who I needed most. Mama rushed there. When she saw him unconscious and bloodied, shining in his silver dress, she didn't cry. She just reached out to hold his hand and shook her head. A few weeks after the accident, Reggie turned 23 and Miss Claudine and Mabel came to visit the hospital. They brought Reggie chicken salad and flowers, a balloon, a few magazines. After some time, he was finally able to sit upright and eat and talk. Most of his front teeth were missing and the doctors gave him special tinted glasses to keep over his eyes. 
When Claudine and Mabel walked into the room, they took pity on my brother. Mabel set the gifts in front of him and patted his head with her gloved one. Reggie, I'm just so sorry to hear about your accident, Claudine cooed, while Mabel grimaced, nodding. How are you feeling, dear? Claudine continued. You want to see what they did to me? Reggie asked. Before they could answer, he took his glasses off and his eyes flayed to the side. His pupils turned lazy and went opposite one another. The room fell silent while we all stared at Reggie. Eventually, I asked everyone to leave and said my brother needed to rest. When Reggie was on his pain medication, he kept asking if the doctor was coming to get him, so I started saying, soon. Reggie would ask me every morning, is he coming today? And I would always answer, soon, Reggie, I promise, soon. One day before he was discharged, he called me over to his bed and gripped my arm harder than he ever had. He took his glasses off and turned his face to me, his eyes floating all around. I need you to tell me, Celine. Am I still beautiful? Do I look like I can see? I held his face and he gave a soft grin. I could see the pink of his mouth in between his broken teeth. All the little ones were gone now. I brushed some sleep off his face. I looked at Reggie as hard as I could and tried to imagine my brother before it all got beaten out of him. My words got caught in my mouth, but I pushed them through anyway. He searched my face, waiting for the answer. Reggie, you are still the most gorgeous thing. His eyes looped around his sockets. He smiled at me. And if I hadn't been there, I wouldn't even know from looking at you that anything was wrong. We'll talk about um, that piece a little bit later on, but I'm curious, kind of going back to the beginning, I guess, was there any specific moment when you decided to become a writer? Did any specific person inspire you or have you always kind of known this is what you wanted to do? I think I've always known and I think when you're really excited about something, sometimes you try to run away from it or diminish it. Um, but I definitely come from a pretty creative family and I always really loved reading and I was writing from a pretty young age. And it was really kind of in my last years of high school. And then again, for me during my last years of undergrad that I decided that I wanted to be a writer and take myself seriously as one. I think it's kind of just been a zigzag of coming back to what I feel like I was meant to do, but I think I've always known I wanted to be one. How do you come up with inspiration for your stories? I really am someone who's just naturally inspired by a lot of things. I think my main rule, though, is I think it's really important for me writing fiction to write first from what I know. So I'm inspired by my culture. I'm inspired by racial identity, ethnic identity. I'm inspired by the South, where I grew up. My family through and through is from the South, Appalachia, then kind of the deep South, Alabama and Georgia. And there's such a tension there. There's such sorrow and beauty there. But, you know, also I just kind of live by this rule that I think everything is sacred. Everything gives me information. Everything has something that's powerful. So I wake up knowing that I'll find something that will inspire me. And it's just really paying attention to what sticks. I've talked with a bunch of people about this just over the course of the you know, past year and whatever has been going on. Do you find that it's easier than for you to feel inspired by what's going on? Or have you also felt like the, oh, the slump of you know, creativity and inspiration. 
definitely feeling the slump, right? Like definitely going through that COVID fatigue and it hit me later. Um, it, I didn't start feeling the isolation and the kind of um, that trapped feeling until kind of months in. And sometimes it is difficult, but I think that when I'm in my right mind and I'm feeling able to be moved, I think this kind of set place, this kind of structured position that we're in with COVID really does give me no place to go but to creativity or to the difficult things or to the big questions that I avoid when I'm able to be busy. It's It's been difficult, definitely not as easy, but I've been able to find a few things that have been inspirational. You mentioned just quickly before about how like location and everything has impacted your writing. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that works with your creative process too? I think location, I really love nature. I love, you know, hiking, swimming. Um, I'm from East Tennessee originally. So that's kind of like a tiny slice of heaven on earth. Um, So I always was really inspired by that. And I love being outside and being in that type of quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when it comes to space and process, really curating a space where I feel inspired to write a place that I feel like invited to come to every day is important too. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoy, and I'm trying to commit even more to creating spaces that are going to really comfort me as I'm doing the work. And that's been fun. I, I live in Wyoming now. I moved in the pandemic. Oh. So I live I live out West now. And the really neat thing is used furniture or antiques or things like that to make your space your own are really affordable out here. So that's been great. But I think that for me, having a space, having a routine and having something that is really easy on your eyes to look at helps me in my process tremendously. I think that's so true in so many aspects, especially now in such a virtual world, like creating a space that's so Mm -hmm. separate from like being in your bedroom or being in your one room of the entire day. I think that's so important. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? I am working on a short story collection and just really trying to devote my time to that. And I won't say too much, but it definitely follows the lives of about eight black women. It's set in the South and it's really fun. (laughs) And um, so a lot of the stories that I already have published, I hope to keep in the collection, but that's what I'm working on now. When you go to publish a story, do you Mm -hmm. find that you have specific publications in mind when you finish it? Are you submitting to a variety of publications? I do keep a list of you know, you have your dream places, right? Like the New Yorker and the Atlantic and N plus one, um, Guernica, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of have middle tier and, and, and other things. But I think in submitting work, I've realized how really important it is to find journals that you align with personally, that Mm -hmm. their values, their mission, writers that they have sampled and and put on display in the past is really important. It has given me a little bit more structure because I'm not just sending out anywhere. I'm kind of being intentional. So um, definitely that and and just following people that I love. And then if there's a short story, I love seeing where it's been published and then thinking, okay, maybe I can get something here too. So last year you were published in the Oxford American. Can you tell us about what that experience was like? 
I was living in Asheville at the time. And I remember I was working in a small college and I had just finished up kind of a longer shift, right? So leaving towards the end of the day and I was packing up, I uh, had a little bit of a drive to get home. And so I, I submitted to the debut fiction call, which is the prize that the story won really months in advance and had pretty much forgotten that I had sent it in. And I, I had marked it as just a long shot, right? Like mm -hmm. at least I'm trying. Mm -hmm. So when I got the email that, you know, not only had they taken the story, but I had won this prize. I mean, no ounce of poise was left in me. Like my, I feel like my knees went weak and I had a, a, a work colleague who I was really close with. And I just went in her office and I was like, I just, this thing just happened and it feels so huge. And we just hugged each other and jumped up and down. So it was such an exciting process, but also like that kind of balm you need to soothe you and be like, yes, I know that I'm going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cause you're always told and you're trying to get this thick skin and mm -hmm. be tough and know that rejections are going to come. I've had so many, my fair share. Right. And, you know, um, you try to just get brave about it. And then when you do get these kind of gifts and these rewards, you're, it, it just makes it so much sweeter. So it was a very exciting day. Would you say out of all your published work, is that the one you're most proud of? Do you have one that you're most proud of? I think that this piece is one that I think was really necessary. Mm -hmm. And it's the story that's felt most in alignment. And what I mean by that is I wrote this story probably two years before I ever submitted it in a fiction workshop. And then again, I kind of tweaked it, taking a fiction class at SCAD with Professor Garcia, who's no longer there. And I was writing about police brutality. I was writing about kind of injustices that marginalized people face, but I was not trying to write a piece about Black Lives Matter or this. It was really just not feeling like I had any way to make sense of what was happening. So writing that story then, showing up for it, even though it was incredibly painful. And then when it was such a time when people were really starting to turn towards realizing how poorly we treat black people, you know, black queer people, black femmes, um, when people were really starting to finally pay some tiny amount of attention, knowing that that's when the story picked up felt really, really in tune. But I think, I think the story I'm proudest of, maybe some of the stuff I'm working on now for the collection, but I'm definitely proud of the one in Oxford American. <laughs> you have a really unique and distinct voice to your work. What was the process like in finding that? I think it was shaped a lot by what I read, what I was reading. Mm -hmm. And I also, a lot of my voice is picked up from Southern dialect or sayings that we use in Tennessee. I also was raised Seventh Day Adventist, which is kind of a really small, interesting sect of Christianity. And so there was a lot of cultural sayings that we would use in that too. And so finding my voice, I think was really about paying attention to how I was raised and turning inward to my surroundings and not trying to mimic voices from people who knew nothing about my lived experience. I, I was really influenced by a book called 
The Girl Who Fell from the Sky by Heidi W. Duro, I believe. I think it won a PIN award a couple years ago. Um, I think it came out in 2010. And I've been reading it since then. And that was probably the first book where I really connected with voice and it made me think about my own. It's shaped by culture and it's shaped what I'm reading and learning about. Do you have any advice on how other people might be able to find their voices as writers? Anything kind of beyond that? I think finding your voice is, I mean, as I'm saying this, I'm still finding mine, right? And I think that finding your voice is so much about trusting in what you have to say. Um, It's about, you know, kind of writing authentically, getting curious, as I said, and really trying to master what you know, you know. And yeah, I think for voice, it's, it's so much about just that authentic place, writing from a place with intention, as Professor Rab always says, and really trusting that you know where your work is going, you know what you want to say, and getting quiet and paying attention to what intrigues you. Letting go of trying to be what other people want. And, you know, we not everybody is meant to have a voice of a writer from Brooklyn who lives, you know, in a brownstone and, and this and that. Like, there's so many different ways to to have a voice, to have tone, to have texture in your work. What is something about writing or the professional writing career that has surprised you? Editors are a lot nicer than I thought they would be. Oh, good. Yeah. So I've been really blessed to work with some editors that I, I admired for a long time. And when you show up and you give your best work and you're on your A game and you show some seriousness and dedication to the craft, I think editors match that. And, you know, they, they really love people who are giving their all. So I, I really thought that editors were going to kind of be like the devil wears Prada type thing. <laughs> you know? And yeah. surely some people are, but <clears throat> I think there's a lot of people out there who just want the best literature, the best pieces of creative work that they can put out there. So I've been really pleased to, to see that editors are humans too and hold you accountable, but also can have a little bit of compassion, which I think is important. Oh, I think that's so good to hear. I feel like there's so many uh, horror stories of people <laughs> who will bring their work to an editor and they'll just try to change the story for them or try to change it into something that they want. And I think that goes back to the kind of thick skin and believing in yourself conversation about, you know, I guess it would be really tough to walk away, but I feel like you have to be able to put on your own work. Absolutely. And you have to know when to hold the line um, and be like, okay, I'm willing to work with you, but these are kind of my non-negotiables. I remember I was working with an editor and I had uh, written some things that were really insular to, again, Black Southern life and and she suggested editing it. And in that moment, I was like, no, this is a cultural thing that this person just may not get, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to change it. And then the other things, when you're really attached to something that you think is so beautiful, and then an editor is like, this actually makes no sense. Sometimes you have to be like, okay, I, I can let this go. So you did a reading for SCAD graduation ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you read and why did you choose it for that occasion? So I think that I read a story called um, Seeking Arrangements. Mm -hmm. 
that was published in Hobart last year. And I chose it because it's one that I don't read as often, but it's one that I really love the tension. I love the movement in the story and it makes me laugh. I was feeling so excited for graduation and just joyful that I wanted, I wanted to switch it up a bit. That's why I chose it. <laughs> Can you um, maybe just share a little about what the story is about? Seeking Arrangements is a story about this young woman who is kind of just broke and working at a call center and sleeping at her sister's house. And she kind of tries to numb her brain out and she meets this, this man on a dating site for like sugar babies. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and the man is offering this false promise of money and security. And she's kind of at a deadbeat point in her life. So, so these two people get on this bus, this Greyhound bus, and they're going to, Florida to meet this man's mother who has dementia and kind of prove to her that that the son is like married and, and kind of going forward. And I love it because it, it just touches on what boredom can do to us mm-hmm. and coming of age and trying to find and fill voids, even when you're smart enough to know that it's not what you need. And then it kind of touches on, you know, Black women, how we're often fetishized. And and there's some humor in there too, a little bit about astrology and drinking at Applebee's. So (laughs) (laughs) the story's about. While you were at SCAD, was there a particular lesson you learned uh, that has really stuck with you? I learned really how to edit my work. I learned that a good story takes a lot of turns. You know, I, I learned how to get really good at deadlines. I learned how to, I don't know, um, trust my, trust in my stories, but I think really learning how to edit and, and see my work with a critical eye was what I feel like was the main takeaway at SCAD. You've mentioned a couple uh, professors too. Do you find that like post-graduation you're still in contact with uh, SCAD people? And um, I'm definitely in contact with some of my really close peers. I have some friends that are going to be lifelong friends. And here and there I talk with faculty and keep them updated. Or, you know, I, I uh, did a, a different reading last November and I got to see some faculty. So I definitely know that they're there and I know that if I'm in Savannah, I'll probably run into them and say hello. But um, I think they really set me up to be an independent worker who feels that I am developing some type of ownership. So that's another great thing that they taught me as well. Sort of um, wrapping up here, but I'm just curious to know where you see yourself um, going in the future. I know you're working on stuff right now, but in the next, you know, five, 10 years, where do you see yourself? In the next five to 10 years, I would love to have published, you know, a collection, complete further projects that I have in mind. Um, I hope to be living back in the South and I'd love a, a farmhouse with some chickens and it would be great if I could be teaching um, uh, creative writing in English. So those are kind of my my main dreams, some practical, some a little more dreamy. Yeah. That's a great, great mindset moving forward. Mm-hmm. Thank you again so much for coming on to our podcast today. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. And I really appreciate it. Hello, everyone. This is Elise again. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Hallie Hill and hearing about some of her work. I wanted to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Check back again Saturday, April 10th for the next episode of Bookmarked and Dog-Eared. We're available on Spotify or at scaddistrict.com. Thanks again.